The other day I was in the sanctuary doing some things and just working in here for a few minutes and it was in the middle of the, of the week, I don't remember what day it was, but, but it was cold outside that day and of course the heat was not on midweek in here and so as I was in here working, it was cold. I just want you, it gets cold in this building, in this building, it gets cold when the heat's not on and uh, as I was working in here and I was just, I kept thinking, man, I'm cold, I'm cold. Then I remembered something that my son Jonathan had said to me on more than one occasion. He said, there is no such thing as cold. Then he went on to explain, he said, cold is simply the absence of heat. But when it's 30 degrees outside, I've never heard anybody say, I feel the absence of heat. <laughs> no, join me. What did they say? I'm Exactly. And I felt cold in here. And I, I stood here for a few minutes trying to figure out, how could it be cold or feel so cold, but there's no such thing as cold? And so I did what a lot of you folks do when you have a question. I googled it. And found a lot of information, and long story short, apparently my son is right. Uh, scientifically speaking, uh, I think he's right. But I found an article in Chicago Tribune. Now, hear this. Chicago Tribune. 2016. They had an article. The headline of the article in Chicago was this. There is no such thing as cold. That was the headline. Now, it gets cold in the winter in Chicago. I wondered how that story went over to those folks. Oh, by the way, I also discovered that in my reading that there's no such thing as darkness either. That darkness is simply uh, the absence of light. That there's either light or there's not light. There's no such thing as darkness. Now, I know what the experts and scientists are trying to say. I can get that a little bit. But I have a hard time really truly understanding what all that means. My little Tennessee mind struggles to grasp there's no such thing as cold. There's... No such thing as darkness. Now, if you and I have a hard time with those kind of terms that are kind of easy for us to understand, cold and darkness, imagine how hard it must be for some people to understand the concept of God or Jesus. Really more sometimes than our little minds can grasp that there is a God who sent His Son, whose name is Jesus, and that's hard for us to grasp, to understand. And so, thankfully, the Apostle John set out to explain to us the first Christmas. And in the first 18 verses of the Gospel, John explains to us that when that baby was born in Bethlehem, grace arrived. It's a beautiful story. Would you open God's Word with me? John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We've been preaching through the first 18 verses you know, I, I thought about if I were in John's shoes, sitting down with pen and paper and trying to explain Christmas, it would be a difficult task to try to explain that a baby born in Bethlehem was actually God in human flesh. I'm not sure that I could do it in, in 18 verses. I'm not sure I could do it in 18 pages. And yet in 18 beautiful, succinct verses, John gives us one of the foundational truths of our faith. Basically, the idea in the first 18 verses of John is this. When we had no way to reach God, He came to us. The one verse that shows that better than any other is John chapter 1, verse 14. This is such a pivotal verse, such a key verse. Some people have called it the greatest verse in Scripture, or at least in the New Testament. 
John chapter 1, verse 14. We're going to put it on the screen. Let's just all read it together. Read with me now. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Recently, Lisa and I went out to eat one night, and I really don't even remember the the restaurant, but I do remember that we ordered dessert. We don't often do that, but this night we thought, well, why not? And so we ordered dessert, and we ordered one of those big chocolate brownies with vanilla ice cream on top and chocolate syrup on on top of that, and, and it's so big they bring you two spoons. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, this was a big plate or bowl. I mean, it was huge. And when they set it down in front of us, we both said, my goodness, we can't possibly eat all of that. I lied. (laughs) I enjoyed eating all of that. We may, quite honestly, we may have left a bite or two just to make ourselves feel better. Uh, But when I look at John chapter 1 verse 14, I feel like I'm looking at this giant dessert. And it's like, My goodness, we can't possibly talk about all of that. I mean, where do you even start to try to explain John chapter 1, verse 14? Some have called it the greatest verse in the New Testament. And so the the best way I know to do this is just to take it apart, phrase by phrase. And try to understand through the power of the Holy Spirit helping us understand God's Word. Try to understand what this wonderful verse is talking about. One of the strategic verses in all of the Bible. And so I'm breaking it down phrase by phrase, and here's the first one, it's this. Look at this. The Word became flesh. Let's just stop there and try to understand that phrase. The Word became flesh. John starts with one of the most startling, incredible things that could ever be said. To fully experience the impact of the verse, you really need to link this verse to verse 1. Because John talked about the Word in verse 1, 2. Remember, he talks about it in verse 14, but he's also talked about it in verse 1. So let's look at verse 1 and see what he had to say. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We talked about that. We're not going to rehash that in the very first message. But I want to call your attention to an important word in this part of the verse. The word was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was was God. But now when John in verse 14 talks about the word again, he doesn't use the word was. John says in verse 14, the word became flesh. The word that always was now became something else. Look at the text. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We often say that Jesus is God and that is true. But here is an incredible statement. John is telling us that God became Jesus of Nazareth. God became Jesus of Nazareth. You see, that word became indicates a time in history when Jesus became something he had never been before. The Word was, the Word was, the Word was, verse 1, verse 14, the Word became. He became something He had never been before. Uh, Maybe this will help you to understand that. A lot of you are Clemson fans, or at least you're familiar with the Clemson football team, and definitely you're familiar with the name Brent Venables. Brent Venables was the defensive coordinator for Oklahoma. And then later he came to Clemson, and he was the defensive coordinator 
for Clemson University. Then on December the 5th of this year, he became something he never was before. He became a head football coach. So he was a defensive coordinator at two different schools. Then on a certain day, he became something he had never been before. He became a head football coach. Ladies and gentlemen, on that first Christmas, Jesus became something he had never been before. Jesus became flesh and blood. I wonder if he ever spent time just looking at his skin. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. It's just in my speculation. I wonder if he ever looked at his hand and just marveled at his hand. I wonder if he just kind of rubbed the skin or scratched his head or, or felt of his face. The Word that always was, the eternal Word of God that always was in Bethlehem became something he had never been before. He became flesh and blood. Can you imagine the distance between those two extremes? The distance between the eternal Word of God and human flesh? Can you imagine the distance between those? You say, Pastor, how do you even explain that? You don't. You just marvel at it and be thankful for it. That's the reason we have B.C. and A.D., by the way. The Word was before Christ. The Word was. He was eternal. And then there was something that happened. The Word became flesh. And that was such a, an important time in history that it split history before Christ and in the year of our Lord. The fact that the Word became flesh and blood split time. And all the world now marks time based upon that day when He became flesh and blood. Now, you might guess there have been some people over the years who have struggled to believe that. Maybe some of you are like that. Maybe some of you watching online. It's been a struggle for you to believe that God really is real or that Jesus is real, that Jesus really is God in human flesh. I mean, some people have no problem believing that Jesus existed. They just have a problem taking that step of faith to say Jesus is God in flesh. And so for some of you, that might be a real struggle for you, trying to figure all of that out. And in, even in the early days of Christianity, the very early days of Christianity, 30, 40 years after Jesus, there was a heresy that developed, a, a lie that developed called docetism. Docetism said that Jesus did not have a real human body. They couldn't, the docetists, they, they couldn't believe that that was true because in their mind the body was evil. Anything material was evil, only spiritual things are good. And so in their minds and their theology, they couldn't reconcile the fact that God could actually have a human physical body. So they said, in order to kind of rectify this in their theological thinking, they said Jesus appeared to have a body. He was a mere phantom. He was not humanly flesh and blood. In fact, they have a famous line that they would say, when he walked across the sand, he never left footprints in the sand. Because he was a phantom. He just appeared to be human. Now, John was addressing that lie when he wrote John chapter 1. That's one of the things he was trying to address. John addresses that lie when he says, the Word became flesh. He was no mere phantom. He became flesh and He made His dwelling among us. And John says, and we have seen His glory. We've seen Him. And the Docetists would say, yes, of course you've seen Him. But what you've seen is, is a phantom. What you've seen is someone that appeared to be human. What you've seen is someone that looked human, but he really wasn't. And so later, John wrote another letter. called We call it 1 John. 
And in the very first part of 1 John, the very first verse, here's a writing to some of the same people and writing about that very same lie that God just appeared, Jesus just appeared to be human. John wrote another letter, and look how he starts this letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which our hands, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. John said he's not just a phantom. We have heard him, we have seen him, and our hands have touched him. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Jesus was God wrapped up in human flesh, and I just want you to ponder that with me for a moment. If that is true, and it is, that means that the love of God, when, when Jesus was wrapped up in, or God was wrapped up in human flesh, it means the love of God now spoke through human lips. And the wisdom of God now occupied a human mind. And the mercy of God now reached out with human hands. That was God. God in flesh. Speaking and preaching. Healing. Loving. And forgiving. See, Jesus did not cease to be God when He became human. Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And you thought it was hard to understand cold and hot. <laughs> Jesus was fully God and fully man. So, trying to help you walk through this, would you take your bulletin? I asked you to get it out a moment ago. Take your bulletin, look on the back. And over these words, the Word became flesh. Take your pen, if you will, and over those words, write the word humanity. Humanity. Lay that bulletin aside, we'll come back to it again in a moment. But just want you to write over those, the word became flesh, humanity. That's what John is trying to help you understand. Jesus literally was human, he literally was flesh and blood. Then John goes on to say, number two, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I love this part of the text. Made his dwelling among us. The word dwelling literally means to pitch a tent. How many of you own a tent right now? Raise your hand if you got one at your house. I know who to borrow one from. I appreciate you letting me know who, who has those. You, you, you've put up a tent. You've put, a lot of you own tents. You've put up tents. You've never, I doubt, I doubt you've ever put up that tent and left it up forever. You might have put it up and left it for a day, maybe even for a week. But we understand that tents by its very nature are temporary dwelling places. Put it up. And when you put it up, you know there's going to be a day, a day you take it down. This word is a very interesting word, dwelling. It literally means that, he, that Jesus, when He came in human flesh, He pitched His tent among ours. Now, this is not the first time God's done this. In the Old Testament, God did this as well. There was a tent in the Old Testament. A tent in the Old Testament called the tabernacle. And whenever the people of God moved... They would set up this tent. It was sometimes called the meeting place because it was the place on planet earth where God met with His people. It was the place on planet earth where God, the Shekinah glory of God, would occupy that tabernacle, that tent of meeting. That was the place where God literally pitched His tent among the people. The tabernacle. It was the divinely appointed meeting place between God and man. And God literally tabernacled. He literally pitched His tent among the people. Jesus is God's new tabernacle. Jesus came and through His body and through His life, God pitched His tent among the people. 
God lived on planet earth among his people through the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, I love the message translation of this part of the verse. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. How'd you like to have Jesus for a neighbor? Well, think about this. The man living with the disciples was guarding God incarnate. No wonder they followed him. No wonder they listened to him. No wonder they marveled at his words. No wonder they left everything in order to learn from him. It was God in flesh. They were living with God in human flesh. Some of you have probably never thought of God in those terms. To you, God is always, in your mind, distant and detached. But at the center of every nativity scene is a baby. And that baby is a timely reminder that the Word became flesh and pitched His tent among ours. The theological word for that, by the way, is the word incarnation. Here's what that word means. It means God in a body. God in a body. That's really, I mean, you you can have a much longer definition if you want to, but, but that... Theological term, incarnation, if you boil it down to its simplest form, it simply means God in a body. So in your bullet, with your bulletin on the back there, over the words, made His dwelling among us, would you write the word incarnation above those words? He made His dwelling among us, write the word incarnation. So we see, looking at the text, the word became flesh, that talks about His humanity. And He made His dwelling among us, that's the incarnation, where God in a body came to live on this earth. Now think of what that means, church. It meant that God was touchable. Literally, God was touchable. It meant that God was approachable. It meant that God was reachable. And in fact, when you read through the Gospels and notice how often people came to Jesus, it really is kind of amazing that there was no hint of the people in His day who ever considered Him too holy, too divine, too detached to come to. No, they came to Jesus, they brought sick people to Him. They came to Jesus and they cried out for His help. They came to Jesus and they put their arms around Him. They invited Him into their home. They never considered Him too holy, too distant, too out of touch. Just the opposite. In fact, I love the story, Mark chapter 5, there's the woman who had this issue of blood for 12 years. She spent everything that she had and gotten worse. One day Jesus comes into town and she did not see him him as too holy, too distant, too detached. In fact, she said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be well. She knew. That's God. In flesh. I, I doubt that she could explain the incarnation to any of us at that moment. But she somehow sensed, she somehow knew this is more than mere human flesh. This is more than a mere man. This is God in flesh. And if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And then you've you got to love the story where the disciples see these parents bringing their kids to Jesus one day. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 19. The parents are trying to bring their children to Jesus. They want to set their kids on His lap. 
They didn't see Jesus as too distant and detached and too holy and all of that. No, they wanted to bring their kids to Jesus and sit their kids on His lap. And, and the disciples started rebuking them and the disciples started turning them, turning them away. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me. He never wanted anybody to feel like God's too distant, too detached. They wanted, He wanted everybody to know. God's touchable and reachable and approachable. Do you know why He came in flesh? He came in flesh because He wants a relationship with you. He does not want you to think of God as distant and detached. He came in flesh because He wants a relationship with you. The Christmas story is a picture of how broken our world is because... We needed more than God in heaven. We needed God in a body to fix the mess we're in. Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And then there's this third section, third part of the verse that says, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is John's way of saying that when Jesus pitched His tent among ours, there were eyewitnesses. We have seen his glory. We've witnessed this. This is not hearsay. This is not a philosophy. This is not a theory. We have seen with our own eyes His glory. The word glory refers to the visible manifestation of God's presence and power. John was saying that when he looked at Jesus, when he lived with Jesus, when he followed Jesus and later wrote about it, he saw the undeniable presence of God. And John summarized it this way, and he was full of grace and truth. Ladies and gentlemen, that's good news for folks like us, is it not? That he's full of grace and truth. Because Jesus is full of grace, we can come to him just as we are. We don't have to worry that we'll somehow be turned away. We don't have to worry that He will somehow reject us. We don't have to worry that we've somehow sinned too much and gone too far and waited too long. He is full of grace. And grace simply means God's undeserving love. And John says, I want you to know something. We've seen Him. We've seen the glory of God in Him. And I want you to know something. When we saw Him, we saw undeserved love. We saw He was full of grace. Then He also said, and He's full of truth. You can have complete confidence in everything that He ever promised because He's full of truth. And when Jesus promises that He will come into your heart, you can believe it because He's full of truth. When He promises He'll forgive every sin you've ever committed, you can believe it because He's full of truth. When He promises you can have eternal life, you can believe it because He's full of truth. He's never told a lie. He's full of truth. You see, ladies and gentlemen, Satan has been lying to you your whole life. Satan has told some of you that there are many ways to God. Or Satan has lied to you and told you that you're better than most people and you're a good moral person. Or he's told you there's no such thing as God. Or he's told you that you've gone too far and done too much to be forgiven. Or he's told you you've got plenty of time. He's lied to you your whole life. But when Jesus came, he came full of grace and truth. See, the one gift we all need this Christmas is grace and truth, and we find it in Jesus Christ. We need God's undeserved love, don't we? Anybody else? We need God's undeserved love. That's grace. And we need God's unvarnished truth. 
and tell us who we really are and how we really can have a relationship with him. And so we pick up the, the story of John's account here as we finish out these verses. Going beyond verse 14, let's just read together verses 15 through 18. I want you to see how many times you see that word grace. We, at the end of verse 14, he says, He was full of grace and truth. And John testifies, verse 15, concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. I wish I could preach on that verse for a while. From the fullness of his grace, there's that word again, we have all received one blessing after another. I love verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. The law was given to show us how God expects us to live and to teach us we could never meet that standard. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made Him known. I want you to notice in closing this last description of Jesus. John calls Him the one and only. Capital letters, the one and only. You see it in verse 14 and you see it again in verse 18. The one and only. So if you're taking notes with us, would you find there in, at the end, the one and only, right next to the bottom line there, would you write above that word deity? Right above the one and only, the word deity. So in the first part of the verse, or this passage, John is talking about his humanity. Then he talks to us about the incarnation, God in a body. And then at the end he says, but I want you to understand his deity. He is the one and only. He's not pretending to be God. He really is God. Jesus is the one and only. And the reason that's so important for you and I today, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is the one and only way to have your sins forgiven. Jesus is the one and only way to have a relationship with God. Jesus is the one and only way to have eternal life. The phrase, the one and only, means literally the unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God. The unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God. John used that phrase again in a few couple of chapters later, if it sounds familiar to you. When you get to John chapter 3, verse 16, John says these words. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Our lives are so broken, our world is so wrecked that God sent His one and only Son to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's how badly we needed Him to come. That's how wrecked our world is. God sent His one and only Son to take on human flesh to die on a cross and experience the wrath, punishment of our sin. And then God brought him up out of the grave three days later to show that he had conquered death, hell, and the grave and to show that he can offer us, he can offer you eternal life. You see, on that first Christmas day, ladies and gentlemen, on that first Christmas day, grace arrived. Before that, there was God and Moses and the law. But on Christmas Day, grace arrived. Verse 17, look at it again. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And that really is good news. I mean, we could have expected that if God were to come in the flesh, that God would come as a judge. That God would come as an executioner. 
Because He had already given the law through Moses and we all failed to obey the law. There was impossibility for us to even keep the law. So we would think that if God was coming into the flesh, He would come into the flesh to be our judge, to be our executioner, because we all failed Him. On that first Christmas morning, when we deserved judgment, grace arrived. Grace arrived. God's undeserved love. He did not send His Son into the world to condemn us. He sent His Son into the world to love us. In fact, you know John 3.16. Sometimes we stop there. Verse 17. John 3.17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Word of God became human flesh. And grace arrived. Can I tell you why we need grace? We need grace because we all have a sin problem. Every one of us. We're all sinners by nature and by wrath. Romans 3.10 For there is none righteous, no not one. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every person here today, every person watching online, we all have a sin problem. And that's the one truth that explains our broken world. And that's the one truth that explains your broken life. Maybe that's the one truth that explains your broken marriage. We all have a sin problem. We all need a Savior. Because we are trapped in our own sin. And we can never free ourselves from it. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, pastor and theologian, German pastor and theologian also died as a martyr for his faith. But before he died, while in a prison cell, on November the, tw- oh, November the 21st, 1943, November, the 20- November 21st, 1943, he wrote these words. He said, a prison cell like this is a good analogy of the advent or the first coming of Jesus. Prison cell like this is a good analogy of the advent. One waits and hopes and does this or that, ultimately negligible things. The door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. The storyline of Christmas is that we are powerless people to be set free from the prison of sin that we're in. Christ came on that first Christmas to unlock the door from the outside. He was full of grace and truth. And He unlocks the door by His death on the cross. His resurrection from the grave. He unlocks the door for us. And He offers us the invitation to come to Him and to step out of this prison of sin. He's unlocked the door from the outside. And for the life of me, I don't know why some of you have not walked through that door called faith. I cannot explain why some people decide to say, no, I'll sit right here. I'll stay right here because this is where I'm going to have fun. I'll stay right here because I'm not sure I even believe in you. I'll stay right here because I don't think I'm worthy. I'll stay right here because I don't think you could forgive me of all that I've ever done. He unlocks the door. And He invites you to come out. 
into the freedom found in Jesus Christ, the love found in Jesus Christ. He stands at the door and John says, He came in the flesh and He died for your sins and He's full of grace and truth. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23 2 Corinthians 9.15 Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Ephesians 2.8 For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. We were powerless to be set free from sin and death until Jesus, through His death on the cross, unlocked the door from the outside. Pastor, how do I do this? How, how do I trust Christ? Listen to Romans 10, 9. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. This Christmas... Before we get to Christmas Day. Maybe even this very morning. I want you to experience what Christmas is all about. I want you to experience the grace and truth of Jesus. Because on that first Christmas morning. Grace arrived. It's offered to you. I want you to bow your heads with me. Every head bowed please. Every eye closed. We all need a Savior, every one of us, because we're all sinners. We live in a broken world, and for many of us, we live broken lives. And if you're honest, you're probably willing to admit you can't save yourself. Nor can you save somebody else, however much you would like to do it, perhaps. We need someone to come in and save us, and there's no way that we can do that on our own. There's no way we can be free from the power and the penalty of sin in our lives. There's no way that we can do it. Such a big problem. We needed not a God in heaven. We needed God in a body. That's Jesus. Who because of His grace, His undeserving love, would live for 33 years a sinless, perfect life so that he could die on the cross as the sinless perfect sacrifice to pay for your sins and mine God brought him up out of the grave three days later to show that Satan had not won death could not hold him and eternal life is available to everybody but the one thing that will keep you from experiencing eternal life and God's forgiveness, the one thing is your refusal to put your faith in Christ and surrender your life to Him. So I'm going to ask you to do that right now. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer with me. There's nothing magical about these words online. I'm going to ask you to pray as well. You don't have to pray them out loud. The main thing is to pray it from your heart and to mean what you say. This is not the kind of prayer that you need to pray every day or you need to pray it every Sunday or you need to pray it. I did that four times. I'm going to do it one more time to make sure. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about finally and forever surrendering your life to Jesus. Settling that once and for all.
that his death on the cross, his resurrection is your only hope. And you're putting your faith today that Jesus Christ was God in flesh who died for your sins. If you'd like to do that right now, finally and forever, surrendering your life to Jesus. Satan's lied to you all your life. Why don't you put your faith in the one who is full of grace and truth? Pray this prayer right where you are. Those watching online, pray it right where you are. Dear God, today, I believe. I believe that Jesus came in human flesh to die on the cross for my sins. God, I believe that you brought him up out of the grave and that you are offering me forgiveness and eternal life. Though I don't deserve it, I gladly receive Jesus into my heart, into my life. Lord Jesus, be my Lord and my Savior. I dedicate my life to you. I thank you that you have forgiven me. That you're offering me an eternal relationship with you. And I thank you that one day, I'll go to heaven where you are. Thank you for your undeserving love. Thank you for this day of salvation. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray.